Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Where have we come from and where are we going within the fixed income markets? Here to tell us, Jeffrey Rosenberg, Chief Fixed Income Strategist at BlackRock, uh, talking about their uh, 2018 mid-year investment outlook. Jeffrey, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with a statistic that got my attention, that the trading range of the 10-year Treasury yield is currently the narrowest that it's been in more than four decades. In other words, it's not moving. We have a flat line. Does this indicate that we're about to break out with yields rising sharply or falling sharply in the next few months? You know, it's an interesting question. You're talking about the trend line of the 10-year interest rates. And if we've had a breakout, and if there's really a breakout to talk about, it's not the 10-year interest rate. It's, it's what's happening on the shorter end of the curve. And there, uh, you had had remarkably low volatility. How low? You had zero volatility because it was zero interest rate policy. And so you had this anchoring of interest rates. And now you're significantly breaking out. You have the two-year uh, well above 2.5%. Wait, wait. I'm sorry to break in, Jeffrey. Yeah, but please. what I'm trying to figure out is the 10-year Treasury yield. Because as we are sure. seeing more volatility and a breakout and a doubling of two-year Treasury yields in the past year, I'm just wondering, I mean, people are looking at that 10-year benchmark as sort of an indicator of global growth and of sort of the, the, the view of the U.S economy right now and inflation, and it's going nowhere. And I'm just wondering, what's this setting us up for? Well, so we're, we're kind of between me wanting to focus on the two-year and you wanting to focus on the 10-year. <laughs> we're ending up talking about the yield curve, which I was hoping to avoid because that's the only thing people want to talk about. But let's talk about it because it's, it's important. And so, yes. See, and I thought you were going to split the difference and talk about the five-year. We could do that. Too. We could certainly do that too. But there is a difference, and 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 the flattening has got a lot of attention. And and you know one of the important points, and Powell raised this in his testimony, and the Fed has been been talking about this for a while. And it's important for the listeners because you know people get focused on the what's happening to the ten year, and the ten years going lower, and the two years going higher, and is that a sign of imminent recession? And the level of the difference, which is part of your question, you know, it's highly influenced. It's much lower in today's environment because of the role of unconventional monetary policy that is happening the world over. And so we want to just take that level of the, the difference in the curve and put a little asterisk on it and say, yes, it's important, but we also have to recognize it's very different than what we've seen historically because of that unconventional monetary policy, quantitative easing the world over, which the point of which was to flatten that relationship. So we want to just sort of think about that it, it decreases some of the concerns. Yeah. It doesn't eliminate them, but it, it takes the temperature down a bit. Pim, I hear what Jeffrey is trying to uh, say very, very politely, that yes, the yield curve matters, but perhaps not as much as it has in the past. <laughs> Jeffrey, I want to ask you about liquidity and specifically the relationship between the rising value of the U.S. dollar, the repatriation of corporate profits that have been sitting overseas, and any constraints on dollar funding. Any thoughts? Yeah. So, um, well, for, 
first, the, the dollar strength is a, is a big deal. It's a big story. We've seen this before. It's an important development. And, and you're seeing part of that about growth differentials. The U.S., we're going to get second quarter GDP next week in the first iteration. You see the tracking estimates somewhere uh, up towards 5%. That's not a sustainable level, but the U.S. economy is powering ahead. And the rest of the world's economies are, are not doing so well. Part of that economic growth, the confidence, again, you hear, heard it from Powell, that just reemphasizes the uh, outlook that U.S. interest rates are going to continue an upward drift. Uh, short interest rates, the Fed policy rates, and that interest rate differential to the rest of the world is another factor behind dollar strength. One factor that is not uh, behind dollar strength is, is repatriation. It's a very misunderstood notion that repatriating uh, foreign corporate earnings results in dollar purchases. And, and the source of the misunderstanding is that most of the foreign-held uh, earnings are held in dollars. The, the notion of them being foreign is not the currency, but rather the legal entity. And so it doesn't really create a, a bid for, for, for dollars. So that's a little bit misunderstood. The big fundamental drivers behind the dollar appreciation is really those two, that growth and that yeah. interest rate piece. So Jeffrey, look into the crystal ball for us. What do you think is going to be the best performing asset in the fixed income world in the second half of 2018? You know, it, it's where I was kind of taking the conversation. We, we really like the front end of the yield curve. Uh, so we're talking about shorter maturities. I'll bracket that one to three year kind of maturities. You can leak out the curve a little bit, but as you do, duration starts to perhaps become a little bit of a drag. And if I add a bit of investment grade credit where spreads have widened and we, and we don't see a lot of credit risk in the next six months to, to undermine that outlook, you're looking at three, three and a half percent kind of yields. That's on an annual basis. Um, so certainly six month returns will be lower than that, but that will probably be one of the best performing assets classes, and it's certainly one of the areas we, we think is the most attractive in the fixed income universe. Jeff Rosenberg, thank you very much for being with us. Jeff Rosenberg is the chief fixed income strategist for BlackRock Investment Institute, giving us uh, details about the BlackRock's uh, 2018 mid-year investment outlook. The Helsinki summit, trade negotiations, Russians. Let's bring in Richard Kahn. He is managing partner of Eurasia Advisors, uh, formerly uh, serving as an advisor to major Russian companies for initial public offerings, uh, also uh, sourcing financing for Russian real estate development, a fluent Russian speaker. So he has a background in understanding exactly the relationship between the United States and Russia on a business level, as well as politics. Richard, thank you very much for coming into this studio. What can you tell us, based on your experience, about the Russian reaction to the Helsinki summit? I think from the Russian perspective, they are uh, truly thrilled. They witnessed the, our goalie continually kicking the ball into his own goal. Uh, and I think at some point, they're probably concerned that uh, people on the team are going to wonder whose side he's on. But from their perspective, this has been a... a a major propaganda victory for Putin himself. He's cemented control in Russia. Nobody there can possibly take him on at this stage. He has a free hand to go after the opposition. 
Uh, but more importantly, they see the weakness of the U.S. They see that, uh, you know, what Trump has done is put us at odds with our allies, has shown he's not going to stand up for our values. Um, all of that is, is a huge win for Russia as they try to assert greater leadership in the Middle East and in the world generally. So President Trump has said repeatedly it's good for the U.S. to have a constructive relationship with Russia. We're the two biggest nuclear superpowers. We don't want war. Uh, was anything achieved that was positive for the U.S. in this summit? Well, first of all, I, I fully agree with those goals. Personally, we uh, and I've spent my life working to help resolve issues between Russia and the U.S. and to bring the countries closer together. Uh, but that's a long-term process. It has to be based on reality and on a recognition of our different values. And that's what Eurasia Advisors is about as well. Uh, and every president, I think, uh, you know, and certainly since the Cold War, has been trying to achieve that too. Uh, but I, I never heard anything articulated by this current president in terms of what his goals actually were in the summit other than saying he wanted to have low expectations. Um, I think his goals were achieved, which was to have a one-on-one -on -one communication with uh, his co-conspirator regarding what took place during the election and to figure out how to handle things now in a manner that helps Trump protect himself. Give us some idea of the actual strength and weaknesses of the Russian economy. Look, the basic Russian economy is that of, a, of an oil and gas state. Uh, it has other natural resources. But uh, the best way to think of it is uh, that although it tries to expand into other areas, including high-tech uh, industries, it doesn't have the infrastructure legally and culturally to allow people to safely invest uh, and develop businesses. Uh, so it really is run more like a what I would call either a medieval empire or a mafia state where certain assets are, of the state are controlled by uh, cliques and those who cooperate with them do well and the rest uh, are either uh, eliminated in some fashion or they are uh, uh, basically uh, invited to leave the country or allowed to leave the country. So, Richard, I want to go back to something you said, that President Trump was meeting with his quote, co-conspirator uh, with respect to what happened during the Russian election. Obviously, this has not been proven yet. Uh, this is very much what uh, Robert Mueller is investigating. So we don't know that for a fact in any way. Um, but I do want to get to something which is the broader political implication of this, where you have a hardening of people who are anti uh, the president, who are trying to say, look, this just shows that he's not fit for office. And then you have his supporters coming out and saying, look, he's trying to create peace. Uh, you don't have anything on him yet. At some point, this will come to a head. The sides are getting increasingly angry and agitated. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's the risk uh, that we have some kind of denouement uh, that is somewhat damaging uh, on many levels here? Well, look, first, you know, I, I make that statement regarding uh, co-conspiracy because I think, one, we saw some of that playing out uh, in the summit itself. I also think there is plenty of evidence of that in emails and other communications that took place during the campaign, as well as in the indictments that we've seen. Uh, I think it's going to be extremely difficult uh, for uh, Trump and his supporters to contend that he was not at the very least aware and receiving uh, support in conjunction with the campaign and cooperating with that. Uh, but look, of course, we're going to wait for the Mueller indictments to come down. 
and we'll see how all those play out and what all the details are. But I've certainly seen enough and have lived a life involved with Russia to know what this is about at this stage. And I see the conduct of our president in giving up critical U.S. positions and also undermining our country and our alliances, all uh, serving, as I see it, the interests only of Russia in this. Uh, so where does this play out? Look, <clears throat> there will always be people who uh, will pay attention only to the tweets from this president and will take his side. Uh, the Russians are also very effective at building additional support, whether it's through the NRA, religious organizations, other groups, to uh, support this president. I am very concerned that at the end of the day, regardless of what happens, he is going to take things right to the line in terms of undermining our institutions as long as he doesn't cross over it to the point where he's obviously acting in a traitorous fashion. That's what happened at the summit where he was pushing and pushing, trying to appease and, uh, and please the, the Russians and protect himself by doing that. But he got the backlash and realized that, boy, I've gone over the line now and my base is starting to see w who I really am, what I'm really about. So I think at the end of the day, uh, we will probably find ourselves in a position where we have strong indictments coming down. And we're at that point going to face, I think, some real issues about uh, the strength of our, uh, of our institutions in dealing with a president who I do not think uh, will hold back in doing anything he possibly can to maintain power. Do you have any comments on the, the idea that the Germans are held captive by the new pipeline, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that would bring natural gas to Germany from Russia that the president alluded to? I do have a view on that. Uh, in my experience, uh, Angela Merkel and her team have uh, integrity and ethics, and I, I think that uh, they understand that although they have to have dealings with Russia, that that does not mean that they need to uh, give up their ethical framework in terms of how they deal with Russia. Uh, having said that, I, I understand that uh, certainly the, creating alternatives to the pipeline you know, might be a good idea in terms of uh, diminishing Russia's influence, but that's just, a, uh, again, more of a business type of issue. I'm not worried about the German leadership becoming like, uh, like our current leadership. Richard, 30 seconds. Russia's hoard of U.S. treasuries plummeted in two months, ended in the end of May. Uh, do you know why? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I know why. I have my suspicions why. I, I think that there is concern that there's going to be a greater round of sanctions against Russia. I think that uh, uh, there's a point at which Putin and Trump and those around Trump are, are overplaying their hand and uh, they have to expect a backlash. And we saw some of that backlash after the, uh, the summit. Richard Kahn, we could go on for hours. Richard Kahn, managing partner of Eurasia Advisors, uh, joining us on the fallout from the uh, Russia-U.S. summit by President Trump and President Vladimir Putin. Uh,
In focus today, very much the Chinese yuan has been falling dramatically. Today's fall is accelerating against the dollar now at the lowest, the weakest versus the greenback in about a year. Joining us now is Wynn Thin, Global Head of Emerging Markets, FX. Uh, and Wynn, we're so glad that you could join us. This is really uh, an important story for today. How concerned should investors be about this decline? And uh, frame it for us. Is this a is this a tool in the trade war? Is this uh, something more significant about a slowdown in the Chinese economy and easing to respond to it? Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Um, there's lots and lots of, of factors rolling the markets right now. But I, I'm going to try and be the sort of voice of reason and say, look, there's a lot of things to worry about, but Chinese devaluation is simply just not one of the major things we should be worrying about. Um, why is that? Well, look, um, you know, for the longest time, over the years, last several years, not decades, the U.S., uh, IMF, uh, also the Western powers have pushed China to give a greater market role to the exchange rate. And lo and behold, that's what we're seeing. If you look at the um, your wonderful WCRS page, if you look over the last 12 months, um, the Chinese yuan is actually one of the better uh, performing EM currencies. But if you look at uh, year-to-date, it's smack in the middle of the, of the EM pact, down 4% year-to-date. My view, uh, and has been for a long time, is that, that the recent weakness in the yuan is simply reflecting a broad-based dollar rally EM uh, sell-off. It's, it's really trading with the rest of EM, and I think that's just sort of what we should be seeing. It's, it's more market-based, uh, more um, uh, being driven by, by global factors. Could you speak a little bit about the shadow banking system that exists in China and the efforts on the part of the Chinese government to try to spur economic growth, specifically among small and medium-sized businesses? Yeah, you know, listen, this is, a, you know, we, I've seen this kind of go back and forth for the last several years. So, in, you know, look, we know, uh, you know I mentioned that there's a lot of factors going on. China in particular is juggling a lot of balls. Uh, they're trying to deal with the slowdown in the economy as well as a sort of stresses in the financial sector. And they've been trying to deleverage for the last several quarters. The problem that we always see is when they tr- try and deleverage, lo and behold, the economy starts to weaken, they get nervous, and they start pushing uh, loan growth to, up again. So it's sort of like a two steps forward, one step back. Uh, my bottom line is I think the, you know, it's, it's a sort of black box. The financial system is is under stress. We've had, just had a, a huge, uh, I think, default. Um, one of the Chinese issuers, I think you guys carried that story overnight. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, um, they're like 20. There have been 20 uh, corporate uh, bond defaults so far in yeah. uh, in 2018. Now, to me, the interesting thing, I think we're going to see that across EM. You know, it's not just China. You know, EM in general took advantage of low borrowing costs globally. They issued debt like there's no tomorrow. And now sort of the, 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 it's time to pay the piper. So, um do I think there's going to be a systemic problem? No. I think the system is in stresses, but I don't see some sort of huge uh, sort of uh, Lehman moment for, for China or for, for the global economy. Um, when I, I understand what you're saying with respect to China being uh, sort of lumped in with the rest of emerging markets and that its currency is actually one of the better performers against developed market competitors or, or, uh, or basically peers. But what I'm struggling with is uh, China is the world's second biggest economy. It can't really Mm -hmm. be lumped in with much lesser economies based on how significant it is for the world economy. And meanwhile, you have the trade war, uh, or at least the threat of an escalating trade war with the U.S. And China is uh, 
easing policies, sort of backtracking on some of the tightening that it had done based on what you were talking about and Pim was talking about. I guess what I'm trying to understand is because, as you were saying, China is such a black box. Could this be that China's economy is slowing much more than official data are letting on, and they feel the need to reverse policy now to counter that? Well, you know, we go back to the age-old debate. Well, how reliable are the Chinese data? And you know, me, I've always looked at it as, as more of a qualitative assessment. Look, we know maybe it's not really growing six and a half, seven percent, but we can sort of, you know, use benchmarks as well. It's it's a little bit slower than it was a year ago. You know, sort of in sort of comparative of uh, matters. Now, you know, to me, um, and you are right that it, it, because it's such a large economy, it does take a special place. In that, in that sense, it makes me believe that they will not do anything that's going to upset or sort of royal markets. And we saw that back in 2015. They devalued, and uh, not only did the, the domestic uh, investors flee, and we had, you know, we had capital outflows out of China, but it, you know, uh, the developed markets, emerging, other emerging markets, stock markets, uh, really felt the pain. And I think China doesn't want to go down that path again. You know, they've seen that it's a very dangerous path to go through. You know, again, they're already um, you know, dealing with all sorts of, of different stresses in the economy. I think uh, some sort of currency crisis is, is sort of the last thing they want to deal with right now. So, again, uh, I don't see the, the, the yuan lines out of line, out of, you know, sort of out of line with the moves of the rest of the world. Um, I think they will continue to manage the currency. And remember, it's not a floating currency. It's a managed currency. But they'll manage it within these parameters. And they'll, they'll prevent any sort of uh, mass hysterical move of some sort in, in global markets. Can you do Turkey in 20 seconds or less? Uh, yes, uh, I would say stay away. Um, you know, we had Erdogan won a huge victory, but he put his son-in-law in charge of the Treasury and Finance Ministry. Uh, he clipped uh, central bank independence. So it's going down a policy road, which I think is bad. Uh, next week will be very telling. Central bank meets. Inflation uh, jumped up in June. They need to hike at least 100, 150 basis points. Let's see if they do it. If they don't, I think we go back up. We take dollar, uh, you want, uh, dollar lira above five. He did it. Win Thin, Global Head of Emerging Markets FX, speaking to us about the Chinese Yuan and the Turkish Lira. He's with Brown Brothers Harriman. The future of healthcare and healthcare costs. Joining us now is Susan DeVore, the chief executive of Premier Inc. They are based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Susan joins us here in our 1130 studios. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Pam. Before we begin in the sort of general context of what's happening with healthcare and healthcare pricing, could you just offer an example of some of the work that you're doing? And I'm thinking most recently maybe of the, the Physician Enterprise Collaborative. Right. And how Premier works with healthcare providers, because I think it's more than 3,800 hospitals around the country. Yeah, so Premier works with 3,900 plus and 150,000 other providers like doctors, nursing homes, surgery centers, those kind of things. Think about us as a national network of providers, the people delivering healthcare to patients. Um, And we are an infrastructure to help them lower their costs, improve their quality, improve their safety, improve their outcomes. And so in the pharma world, for example, we aggregate their buying of drugs. We create competitive friction between suppliers. And the inflation in the cost of drugs that we help them negotiate is half what the industry inflation is. So that's an example of how Premier works and what we're trying to do with these healthcare systems. We do similar things where we help them improve their safety 
you know, lowering infection rates in hospitals, lowering mortality in hospitals. And so it's two sides of an equation, which is a cost reduction side and a quality improvement side. So uh, we had some guests on a few weeks ago who were talking about the Indian uh, system, healthcare system, and how the U.S. could learn something from the hub, hub and spokes model that they have, where they have hubs that really specialize in specific services and that are experts, and then the, the spokes that kind of prover, provide the other services. Have you ever recommended to any of your clients, you guys, this whole center should probably be shrunk immensely or, uh, or cut uh, and really rely more on these people for services? What's your thought on that? Yeah, when you think about the evolution of the healthcare system, Premier has systems of all kinds around the country. A lot of them are integrated delivery systems. They are hub and spoke, but we may have more of them in a market than we long-term need. And so the real question is, how do we take the services and optimize the volume and optimize the cost performance and optimize the quality outcomes? But yeah, we have we have a lot of markets that have moved into that integrated delivery system model. Several large pharmaceutical companies such as Novartis and Pfizer have said that they are going to freeze drug prices. This seems to be in response to the tweets and the comments by President Donald Trump. Do you think that that's an effective way to manage healthcare pricing? You know, I actually think that the drug blueprint and Scott Gottlieb and the things that he's trying to push forward with the administration are things that are pointed in the right direction. Speed up the approval of generics, get rid of some of the loopholes for extending the life of a branded drug company. I don't think anybody just saying we're going to freeze prices for a period of time. I mean, the truth is you got to have market forces and competition every day, all the time, um, to actually have a sustainable, um, you know, managing factor for drug pricing. Do you think that Medicare should play a more active role in negotiating uh, with pharmaceutical? We think at Premier that Medicare should continue to implement these value-based payment programs. So you take the delivery system, you have them own the risk of the total cost of the patient, and then you create, you allow for market forces and competition to have the healthcare system try to lower the cost of the care that they're delivering to patients. We think the government directly intervening in the decisions about which drugs, at what price, patients will have access to will be, will be very problematic. Okay, but if the government is the one that's ultimately paying the bill, shouldn't the payer be allowed to negotiate prices, particularly when they are such a big force in the market? You know, the last time I was on the show, which was about a month ago, I talked about employers getting directly involved with providers and consumers in the cost of health care. So if you think about Medicare, Medicare is a payer. They are the implementer of, and they are in a sense the employer too, because these are Medicare, these are Medicare patients. So yes, we think that they should be directly involved, but we think the way that they ought to do it is to go directly to the provider delivery system because that's where the decisions are being made and that's where you want the decisions to be made. So create models that, that take that provider system and help them manage the cost of the care. You know, a month ago I said I thought employers were getting a lot more active. Since then, 
We've got J.P. Morgan, Amazon, and Berkshire who've hired now their CEO. You've got a coalition of employers who are now attacking some of the high-cost procedures. You've Amazon got, bought PillPack. Amazon bought PillPack. Amazon is reportedly talking to X Health, and so these are all initiatives that say maybe there's an insurance company in the middle of this that that actually isn't lowering the cost of healthcare and isn't delivering the best clinical outcomes. And I think the same is true for the Medicare world. And maybe it'll be disintermediated. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Susan DeVore, uh, thank you so much. We love having you on. It's an important perspective. This is an important industry to keep tracking, especially given uh, all of the pressure to try to uh, make it more efficient to deliver healthcare in the U.S. Susan DeVore, Chief Executive Officer of Premier Inc., normally based in Charlotte, North Carolina, but joining us here in our 1130 studios in New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.